So, um, so this morning, uh, I, I asked Eddie Anderson, who's a pastor up at Calvary Chapel, Plasterville, to come down and teach. And the reason I did that is because I, I did have a week off, and if I'm really going to take a week off, if I'm, I'm not going to, if I'm really going to do that, it's it's good just for me just to kind of step away from even studying because then I kind of get involved. So. And it was a full week that I was out of town and I got back, so didn't want to have to cram and put something together. So I asked Pastor Eddie to come down, and he was gracious enough to come down. So let's pray, and uh, let's go ahead and let's continue on with um, our service. Lord, we just want to thank you for just the way that you um, have provided for us. And, and Lord, there's so many ways. I just think of this, these times that we live in. And Lord, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of negativity, but then I, I get to think, wow, the, the times that we live in, there's so many neat things that I have available to me. And Lord, just being able to have the Word and the amount that we have of the Word, and just in print form and, and even on our electronic devices, Lord, it, we're really, we're, we're so privileged. And Lord, we just want to thank you for your goodness. Uh, we want to thank you for everything that you provide. I want to pray, Lord, uh, this morning uh, over just uh, uh, our teaching this morning. We want to thank you that we're going to be taught from the Word and uh, we're going to hear your voice. And so I pray you open up our hearts. I want to pray for even that prophetic quality of the Word to come forth, that it would be speaking very directly into our lives as you're so good at doing. And so pray that you just anoint Pastor Eddie right now and uh, the rest of our worship time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, can you guys hear me okay? Well, good morning, all y'all. How are you doing? If you were here sometime around December, or last September, I got to do this once before with you guys, and uh, we had a pretty good time then. Um, uh, but during that time, I had uh, the opportunity to take you guys through a passage of Scripture that, that uh, had been really speaking to me for the last few months before that, and that was out of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, it was an interesting um, passage of scripture because it was all about bitterness, you know, and not letting bitterness, you know, throwing bitterness out and taking it out like the trash. And we got to kind of illustrate that from the Old Testament. And I like, to, I like, like that when that happens, when a Bible teacher comes up and they teach the Word of God, and they, they, they give you this principle or this idea out of the New Testament, and then they go back to the Old Testament to kind of illustrate that. And so we're going to do that again today because uh, it's fun, right? All right, let's pray. Father, we just praise you this morning, and we want to give you thanks, Lord. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would just lead us during this time in your Word. I ask, God, that you would... Uh, Lord God, speak to our hearts, and if there's anything that is in our hearts, Lord God, that is holding us back from fellowshipping fully with you, that, Lord, you would expose that in the, the privacy and the quietness of our own hearts, Lord, and that, that, Lord, we can give those things over to you, we can confess them, and that, Father, we can um, we can just uh, let those things go, Lord, and that, that Lord, we can um, be back in fellowship with you and glorify your name, Lord, in our lives. In Jesus' name. Now, I have a question for you guys. Have you ever been, like, in a situation where you've had, like, every reason in the world to be bitter about something, or to be angry for that matter, like, just angry at somebody or some situation, maybe it's at work, maybe it's with family? Oh, gosh. 
Family's like the worst when it happens there, I swear. And so uh, you have like every reason in the world to be bitter about the situation. And you wonder, you ask yourself like, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen to me? It stinks. I don't like it. Um, it's terrible. And, uh, and then the Lord is just like, shh, just ride this one out and just uh, be open to what I have to teach you through this. I hate it when he does that. I really do. But then he does it. And then you look back on that and you go, you know, I'm not sorry that happened. You know, And there are times that he does that. There are times that he takes us through these moments. And, and I think we've all kind of been there to a certain extent. And so the last time I was with you guys, we talked about bitterness. But um, sometimes there's anger that comes out of situations like that. And you go, what, what do you do with that? What do I do with that? right and so um there was one such event in my life a while uh, a few years ago and my wife and i had to walk through and uh, we walked through the bitterness part of it and the lord showed us how to deal with that but then there was always that lingering anger that, that comes about every time you think about it again it's like oh that happened again you know like, oh what do i do with that and so the lord took me back to that same passage in ephesians and he took me a few verses before that in chapter four Ephesians, if you want to turn there, you could go there. We won't spend our time there, but we'll just read a verse here really quick. And that is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. You know, this is one of those passages that can be easy to miss what Paul was trying to say. It can be easy to miss what he was trying to communicate to that church in Ephesus. Now, if you don't know the history of the church of Ephesus, it was a church that was comprised both of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Because, you know, usually when Paul would go to a city, he would start out by going to the synagogue first, and, and when he got kicked out of there, he would go preach to the Gentiles, and that's kind of how Ephesus got started. Well, there were some believers that actually came out of the synagogue, and then others that came from his uh, preaching and teaching and evangelizing in the city square and places like that. And so that's kind of what who made up the church in Ephesus at that time. It was also the church that Paul spent most of his time at during his missionary journeys. He spent almost three years there. You know, in our Western way of thinking, we can easily read verse 26 and assume that what Paul meant to say was, don't go to bed angry. I mean, have you guys ever read that verse and said, okay, so what Paul's saying is don't go to bed angry. Okay, maybe I'm That's it. For a long time, that's how I looked at it. Until, uh, at least until I went to Israel about 10 years ago. And it was there that I learned that the Jewish, the, in Jewish culture, the Jews, they tell time differently than we do here. Here in the United States, um, our day begins at the stroke of midnight. Right? I mean, like 12 o'clock a.m., that's the new day. But over in Israel, it's different. Their new day begins right when the sun goes down. So they're like still awake when the new day starts. And it's a whole different way of thinking. It was the same way for the ancient Jews as well, and Paul was no exception to this. So what Paul was trying to communicate to the believers in Ephesus was... Not necessarily don't go to bed angry, but rather don't start a new day in your anger. 
This is very important to keep in mind because when we allow anger to linger, when we allow it to linger, that is when we run the risk of actually sinning in our anger. Now, I've got to ask you guys, is anger in and of itself, is anger a sin? Of course not. It shouldn't be. It's an emotion. And God gave us emotions. I mean, God made us in his image, right? We're made in the image and, and, uh, of, of God himself, and, and that means that in some ways, uh, even how he, he gave us emotions, just like he has it. In fact, you could read throughout all the Bible, and you can see that God himself has that emotion of anger. So anger in and of itself is an emotion. It's not a sin. He himself, God, feels that anger because, uh, because there are things that make him angry. So we're designed to feel that as well. Now, there are right times and there are right things to feel anger over. I mean, I felt a lot of anger, uh, you know, when I saw some of the executive orders that were being that were being signed right after the election, after the new administration came in. And there's a lot of reason to be angry over those things. Um, that's kind of a righteous anger. It's angry, it, it, is, it, it is not wrong to feel anger when you've been wronged by somebody on a personal level. Or when you see somebody that's been wronged on a personal level. Those things are not wrong to feel anger over. But, when we allow that anger to turn into sin, that's when things get a little sticky. So the next question that I have is, is when does anger become sin? And the answer to that is, it becomes sin when that anger crosses over, crosses the line over to harming someone either in thought, in word, or in deed. You guys understand that? So, like, I mean, it's not wrong to feel anger over a situation, but the minute you start thinking about getting back at the person or um, saying something that would be just as harmful or even doing something that could be harmful, that's, that's, it starts right at the thinking, and that's where anger begins to cross over to that. In verse 27, Paul went on to say, and give no opportunity to the devil. The word opportunity is that we see here in that passage, it's interesting and it's worth taking a closer look at. That particular word in the Greek is used over 94 times all throughout the New Testament and it's translated into many different words. It's not just translated into opportunity. In fact, most often it's translated into the word place as in like giving somebody a place to sit or place to stay. It's also translated into the word room and also the word position. All of those words really give us a sense of something geographical. Kind of, like taking, kind of like taking or giving up territory in a sense. In fact, the Greek scholar Zodiades gives us a great definition of the word opportunity, and I mean the Greek word for the opportunity. He says it's as occupied or filled by anything or any person, a spot, a place, room to give. 
Another English version of the Bible actually translated that same word in this passage as a foothold. You can read that and give no foothold to the devil. That term foothold is a military term, and it's used to describe a situation when you or your enemy have gained the advantage over your opponent by gaining a key piece of territory. For example, a military unit who is trying to gain territory and pushing the enemy out, and if they gain like the high ground where they can descend upon the enemy or shoot down at the enemy, and they have all of the, the view and the advantage of all of that, they've gained a foothold in the enemy territory. In a hand-to-hand -hand combat situation, it means gaining a position in that person's stance. I have a brother-in-law, he's like a, a seventh degree black belt, okay? It's great to watch him work out and uh, do some of the things that he does. But my wife still kind of works out with him every now and then. It's her little brother and she used to take martial arts too. And for a long time she was taking hand-to-hand -hand combat with him. And uh, she wanted to come home one day and uh, show me some of the new moves that she had learned. Like this is a, a few years back and she, she goes, here I want to show you something that I learned. And I'm like, okay. This will be fun. And so I take a position. She, she takes a position and she steps literally right in between my legs, right here, right in the middle of my stance, and throws me. Like, literally throws me. This is like a little 125-pound woman. And she throws me. It's like, oh, boom. And I'm like, I don't want to do that ever again. You know, as I'm trying to regain my breath after losing my weight and all of that. And she's like, ah, you know. Um, but to gain a foothold means to gain a position in somebody's, in somebody's region to where you can take advantage of them. And what, the idea that Paul's trying to communicate here is uh, don't give the enemy that kind of territory. Don't give him the room to come in and take you down. It's interesting. And it's interesting that Paul tagged that on. He used the conjunction there in don't give the enemy a foothold, and, and is a conjunction. You guys remember conjunction, conjunction, it's, it's, a, it's a little tiny word that ties one th or ties one, the afterthought to the previous thought before that. And uh, he's tying the idea of giving a foothold to the enemy to the, to the idea of sinning in your anger. So when we begin to sin in our anger, we give in either, in, when we sin either by thought, by word, or deed, we're giving a foothold into our life for the enemy to come in and take us down. So what does giving a foothold to the devil have to do with that? And I'll tell you that. Giving the foothold to the devil leads to a world of hurt, bitterness, and sadly enough, there are consequences to that. So what happens when we fail and we sin in our anger? Is all hope lost when we do that? Well, I mean, I don't think there's a person here. I mean, I'll just tell you guys right now, I've sinned my anger. I wish I could say it's been a long time, but uh, sadly enough, I think there are most of us here can say, can say we, we've either sinned in our anger in one of those three ways, by thought, word, or deed. So what I want to do here this morning is we're going to take another trek through the Old Testament um, into the life of David again. And we're going to see where David uh, began to sin in his anger.
like legitimately began to sin in his anger, both in thought and word, and almost in deed. But God was faithful. God was faithful in David's life, and, he, and not all hope was lost for him. So why don't you guys turn with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 25. It's in the Old Testament. And we'll begin in verse 1. Verse 1 begins, and it says, Then Samuel died. If you guys don't know who Samuel is, you can read back a few chapters at the beginning of the book, but he was kind of the, the prophet of the nation at that time, and he was kind of really God's mouthpiece to the people of Israel. And he was the one who anointed both uh, Saul, King Saul as the king, and then ultimately when God took his blessing and his anointing from Saul, he was the one that came and anointed David as king as well all by God's decision. And so now we come to a time in David, David's uh, uh, life where this guy, this person, who is kind of the mouthpiece for God, for the nation of Israel, he passes away, he dies. And it says, Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him. And they buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now there was a man in Moab, or Maon, whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing the sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Now, if you're familiar with the life of David and, and kind of his story and how it takes place in, that, in the first book of Samuel, these events take place at a time where he was experiencing a lot of frustration and trial. It was a difficult time in David's life. He had been literally on the run, living in the wilderness, in caves of all places, and also camping out with the enemies of Israel. And he had just been running for his life from the very guy he was supposed to be serving, and that was King Saul. Saul wanted nothing more, to, uh, he wanted nothing more to do to David than to kill him. He had tried several times, uh, and he'd been chasing him all around during this time. And in the previous chapter, the last time I was with you guys, we saw that David wanted peace between him and Saul. He didn't desire to kill Saul. He wanted peace between their two households. He wanted peace between themselves. And he even had the opportunity to take Saul's life. And he could have struck Saul down in an act of bitterness when he was given that opportunity in a little cave, kind of in a place called En Gedi. But David was a man after God's own heart, and he wanted to do what was honorable before the Lord. And so he did, and he spared Saul's life. In verses 1 through 3, we're introduced to two new characters in the narrative of the life of David. The first one is a man by the name of Nabal, who interestingly, if you look up his name, it actually means fool. He was a rich man. This guy had flocks, he had a house, he had property, he had servants, he, had, he was rich. The second character that we're introduced to was Nabal's wife, Abigail. And if you look up her name, it means my father's joy. And it's a pretty appropriate name for this woman. 
In other translations, we read, uh, we read that Abigail was a discerning woman. And as we read on, we're going to see why she was discerning. But Nabal himself, we're told, was a harsh and a badly behaved character. This guy, this guy was, he did not treat people well. Now, there's a few of those people in this world, aren't there? I mean, I've known a few. I used to work in real estate. Trust me, there's badly behaved people. And there always has been. So, verse 4. Then David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. Thus, you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace, peace to your house, and peace to all that, uh, peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So to kind of give a little bit of a backstory here, David had been, as he was on the run with Saul, had been camping out in various areas, and he happened to come to the area known as Carmel, and he's hanging out in this area. And this guy Nabal had his, all of his young men and his servants and his shepherds taking care of the sheep in that area. And it was right during shearing season. And so they're getting ready to, you know, shear the flocks. And, and David kind of, he did Nabal a favor. I mean, without even being asked to do it, he starts taking care of the men and making sure that, you know, no nefarious people attack the flocks and keeping them safe. Did His men didn't touch anything. And so, you know, I mean, he, he really had helped this guy out. And so finally, um, David's like, okay, it's a feast day. I got to feed my men. And so he sends 10 of his own young guys to Nabal to, uh, to appeal to him to, hey, can you help us out a little bit here, you know? We, I mean, we're hungry, we've been helping you guys out. You, you kind of get the idea, you know? Well, I, I mean, with what was going on. And so, and so, um, having a guy, you know, especially having a guy like David around with like 600 fighting men and keeping the bad guys away, that's kind of a, a big service right there, especially in that time. When we consider what David had provided for this man, it kind of really puts David's request into perspective. Even though it seems like he's asking for a lot, it really wasn't. He was just asking for whatever food he had on hand, you know? And this guy was wealthy, he could have spared it. So we pick up in verse nine. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all of the words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away from each one from his master. That's kind of a cut. And he knew exactly who David was. And he knew that, that uh, he and Saul were being at odds. And he kind of points that out. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the man or give it to the men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and they went back and they came and told him all of these words. Well, Nabal's something else, isn't he? 
here are these young guys sent by David, and they're like kindly asking for a little assistance. And the answer they get back, the answer that they get is nothing short of just pure rudeness. I mean, that's just a rude answer. It's a rude, I mean, it's rude that they, he treated them that way, and the answer was even rude. Yeah, I mean, the guy basically says, who's David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are guys like this all over the place breaking away from their masters. You know, and I mean, that's basically he was saying David is nothing more than a rebel to the throne. And I don't care who he is or where he comes from, and I'm under no obligation to help any of his, him or his men. Now just go away. Have you guys ever met somebody like that? I mean, that's like a caustic kind of a personality, right? You know that word caustic? It, it, it means something that's able to burn or corrode things away. It's what we use to describe acid. And I, I mean, that's just caustic. I mean, that, that, that's a personality that just burns and corrodes things, you know? So now we have the offense. The offense has been given. And this was definitely an insult to David. It was an injury to him and his men. And if I were in this situation, I would be angry, and I think he, he had every reason to be angry with this guy Nabal. So let's see where, where this goes. Verse 13. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. I like how the ESV puts this. Every man strapped on his sword. Every man and then every man strapped on their sword. It's like lock and load, guys, we're going. We're going to go take care of this now. Now I have to ask, do you think David was sinning in his anger right here? I would answer that with yes. He was definitely headed in that direction. Um, he was sinning in thought and in word. He was definitely, he definitely had harming Nabal as his intent. He was going to teach this guy a lesson. And he was going to lead others to do it with him. So in thought, because he had the ill intent to, to do harm to Nabal, but also in word, because he was leading his men to do it. This is really interesting when we take into consideration the restraint that David had when he exercised not killing Saul in the previous chapter. You guys understand what I mean? I mean, it's like, here's David, he's in a cave, and he has this opportunity to take Saul's life in the previous chapter, and he literally sneaks up on him with like ninja-like stealth, and he cuts a piece of his robe off, and then he sneaks back to his place. You know, all the while his men are going, why didn't you kill him? Did you kill him? You know, but he exercised restraint. And the Lord, it actually says the Lord struck David's heart as soon as he had done that. And he realized that that wasn't such a good idea. It really wasn't the Lord's intent. But now David's just like, I'm done. I'm ready to kill this guy. And so he, strap it up, boys. We're going. And that's, that's where they start heading. And he was leading his men to do it. So why did he exercise restraint before? And not now? I don't know. It's hard to say. 
It's hard to say why this angered David to the point of acting so rashly, when, uh, and especially when uh, he was capable of listening to the Lord when it came to Saul. Interesting that he could still be swayed in his emotions and fail when it's a different set of circumstances. Verse 14. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and day, all the time that we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all of his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Now enter, now enter Nabal's wife, Abigail. Isn't it interesting? Nabal's employees even knew what kind of guy this, this guy was. I mean, he called him a scoundrel. And I don't mean like the Han Solo kind of scoundrel. You guys, have, if you've ever seen, you know, uh, Empire Strikes Back, it's like, you like me because I'm a scoundrel. You don't have enough scoundrels in your life. That's not that kind of scoundrel. I mean, like, this guy was, he's just mean, you know? Just mean. Fortunately, none are, fortunately, one of them knew exactly what to do. One of Nabal's servants knew exactly where to go with this. So he goes to Abigail, and he explains everything. He explained how David and his men protected them. He explained that they did not even take advantage of him during that time. He was a wall between them and other scoundrels who would take, take advantage of, him, or of them. He even made the point that Nabal actually owed David and his men for protecting them, or for the protection that he had provided. Verse 18, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two, <clears throat> two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five, uh, five uh, seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, as she rode the donkey, that she went down under, under the cover of the hill, and there were David and his, young, or were David and his men coming down towards her, and she met them. When verse 3 said that Abigail was a discerning woman, I think it was an understatement. As we look at the next few verses in the chapter, what we're going to see is that Abigail is a beautiful picture, an absolute glorious picture of the Holy Spirit and how he can intervene into the life of a believer, especially when we're on the verge of sinning. He intervenes into our lives that way. He intervenes into my life that way. Especially when we're on a path that can lead us to some very dire consequences. Verse 21, Now David had said, Surely in vain, I've protected all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of, of all that belonged to him. 
And he repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. So in verse 21, we see David was right. Nabal was an ungrateful person, okay? But in verse 22, here's where David was wrong. Going and seeking justice on his own was not the correct course of action here. Now let's look at Abigail and how she dealt with David's anger. In her reasoning with David, there are four things, there are four things I think we can see with the way that she had approached David to deal with this situation. Number one, Abigail acknowledges the truth of the situation. She's going to acknowledge the truth. In verse 23, it says, Now when Abigail sought David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. Now she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel name. Well, it's twice that guy that called a scoundrel. Okay? Please not let my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. This guy's a fool. He's even named a fool. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. You know, I find it interesting how Abigail took the responsibility for Nabal's sin. She didn't say she was the one that actually did, but she took on the responsibility for it. But when we see, uh, but then we see that she goes on to explain all the reasons why David still needed to spare her. Like she says, "On me, I take the responsibility for this. Now, please spare me." What's important to point out here is that Abigail fully acknowledged that David was wronged by her husband. She did not deny that her husband had wronged him. I will, I'm going to submit to you guys that the Holy Spirit is not unaware of the wrongs that we sometimes face from others. He is not unaware of when people do things that are harmful to us or in some way hurtful. Nor is he unaware of the type of people that we suffer these things from as well. God knows. It's not that he's unaware. And so first thing, the first thing that we see is that Abigail acknowledged the truth. I get it. My husband's a scoundrel. Okay. The second thing that she does is we see that she appeals to David's conscience. Let's look at verse 26. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. So right here we see Abigail appealing to David's conscience. What's interesting is how she actually said it. In the past tense, as in like, the Lord has already restrained you, David. The Lord has restrained you from, from uh, the blood guilt and from saving, your, or by saving yourself by your own hand. You know, I think most of us here have been in those situations where we've been genuinely wronged by some scoundrel or another. And we've, and we've experienced that kind of a thing. You know, it's kind of funny. Um, 
Somebody gave you really wise words once in a situation like that. They basically said, and, and I was at a point where I was ready to, I mean, in my heart and in my mind, I was ready to take somebody to court for, uh, for slandering uh, my wife, for slandering us and whatnot. I mean, I was there. And uh, I sat down and the person said, you know, when we're wronged, we have a choice. We can either let the Lord be our defense or we can try to defend ourselves. And you know what? He will let us do that. God will let us defend ourselves. But wouldn't it be better to have him be our defense in situations? I know that's kind of hard to comprehend if you're in the midst of something. But, you know, there's wisdom in that. So the third thing that we see is that um, we see that Abigail uh, advocates for David to forgive and let the Lord defend. In verse 27, she goes on and says, And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And the evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has arisen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out. Interesting choice of words right there. If you think about David and Goliath and how he was killed, he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. I don't know whether she was asking David to forgive Nabal or whether she was asking David to forgive herself. She certainly had not done anything to wrong David. But again, she was kind of just taking on that responsibility for Nabal's, for Nabal's trespass. Regardless, forgiveness up front is an absolute necessity in situations like this. If we're not prepared to, if we don't forgive up front, we're not going to be prepared to forgive, period. It's got to be there right up front. She also reminded David of who he was and what he was called to do. You know, so often the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit's appeal, he reminds us of who we are and what we have in him and the effect and, and, and who we have in him can have the effect of turning us around. Sometimes the Holy Spirit has to remind you, you're a believer. I've called you. Now remember that. And that can actually have a, an effect in turning us around. Oh, yeah, I am. Okay? And oh, gosh, I've done so much. I've hurt people. I've done things dishonest. I've needed forgiveness. You know, sometimes we need to be reminded of those things, especially when we're strapping on our swords and we're going to go shed blood, figuratively speaking, hopefully. The fourth thing that we see here with Abigail is that she reminded him of the consequences. There's always consequences, especially when we go into avenging ourselves. I had to think that one through once because I, as I mentioned earlier, I had the opportunity. I was ready. I had, I was ready to take this to uh, my dad. You know, we had an attorney in our family, 
that, that does a lot of our families legal work, how do they take this to that person? And, and uh, yeah, I had to think about the consequences. This is, this could be costly. This this can actually this can actually hurt the ministry in so many different ways too. So we see in verse thirty. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel. Abigail knew exactly what David was called to do. She was looking out for David's interests in the future as a king. That this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. For David to have avenged himself in this would have brought a lot of unnecessary guilt on his own conscience. It would have also been a stain on his throne. It would have been a stain on his reign over Israel. It would have been an unnecessary thing. When we let the Lord fight our battles, it is a far greater testimony to God, and it is a testimony to the gospel in so many ways. He is so much more just than we are. You guys realize that, right? Like, God is still a just God. You know, you look at all of the, the I call them the warm attributes, you know. The, he's a loving God. He's gracious. He's merciful. You know, all of those attributes. Then you have this other side to who God is that is equally as important. And justice is one of those. God is a just God. And he's so much more just than us because, number one, he knows the bigger picture. He sees everything. We don't see everything. A lot of times we want to execute justice based upon our own assumption in the situation. But God actually knows the heart and he sees things. And he's able to work things in ways that we never could think were possible or, uh, or imaginable, especially when we release our grievances to him. See, David knew this about the Lord. He was already exercising it in his relationship with Saul. But sometimes, you know, when somebody does one thing and you're like, okay, okay, I could deal with this Lord, it's yours. And then it happens to you from another place, you know. Uh, you know, somebody else comes in and offends you, and you're just like, I'm done, you know, at that moment. And it's like, no, if you're going to exercise this, we need to be consistent in that. David knew this about the Word. You can see it because he, the Psalms are loaded with acknowledgments about this truth of God and His justice and all of that. So let's recap for a second here. First, Abigail acknowledged the truth. Secondly, she appealed to David's conscience. Third, she reminded David to forgive and let the Lord be his defense. And lastly, she reminded him of the consequences. What an amazing example of how the Holy Spirit can work in our hearts when we are angry because we've been wrong in some way, shape, or form. Now, let's see what David did. Verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice. And blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, 
who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you would hurry and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. I love David's response to this. In an instant, he heard it. He turned. He may have started out down a very dark path, but his heart was convicted. And that shows you the sensitivity that he had to the Lord and to, and to his desire to please the Lord. He, and he turned. When he heard the voice of reason, he listened. So can any one of us, when we have already started going down that dark path in thought and in possibly even in word. If we just take a moment and let our anger be placed at the Lord's feet, at the foot of the cross, trust me, he is always right there. Verse 35, so David received from her hand what she had brought to him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. So what did David do? He listened. Sometimes we just need to let it go. I'm not going to sing the Disney song, I promise you. You guys want to see what happens after David let it go? It's kind of cool, actually. This is, this is called letting the Lord fight your God. Verse 36. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast with his house, or in his house, like the feast of a king. He didn't even notice the stuff that Abigail took. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, not probably not wise to do with a drunk. She told him nothing, little or much, until the morning light. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. The dude had a heart attack. She tells him, uh, Nabal, I got something to talk about with you, dear. What? So, you know, David, the one you, uh, you sent the 10 guys to us to appeal to us for food? Why? What about him? He knew about 400 of his mighty men were coming up to, you know, kill you. Uh, do you have a heart attack? I would have a heart attack. Don't have enough guns. Interesting, huh? There we go. So when David heard that Nabal... Oh, wait. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I lost my place. It happens. So it was in the morning... Oh, and then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. The Lord's going to defend. He will. It may not be in the timing that we would like, but he is so capable of defending us. You know, 
I'll be honest with you guys about this. You may not even get to see the Lord deal with it. That doesn't mean that, it's, that he's not going to take care of the injustice. But what if, what if perhaps the person who is unjust to you, the Lord deals with in his own justice in such a way that it brings them to him? Would that not even be better? I'm just throwing that one out there. And then there's always that potential of a restored relationship or restoration that takes place in that time. I don't know. And maybe this person doesn't turn and their heart is so hard and, 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 they're, and they're just a scoundrel to you for however long and forever. The Lord's going to deal with it when all this is said and done here. Verse 39, so when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and it has kept his servant from evil, for the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. Boy, I think David was very grateful that he did not let that sin escalate. I know, I know from, from situations that we've been through that those are times that I, personally, during those times that I was able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and obey by turning my anger to, by turning my anger and giving it to the Lord, I was very grateful that it did not escalate when it could have. Because those times that I haven't, and I've let those things escalate, I cannot look back on those times without some form of regret in one way, shape, or form. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. Interesting. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, Thus, or saying, David has sent you, or David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, Here's your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail arose in haste and rode on a donkey and attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. You know, it's funny. Isn't it interesting when we take that moment and we heed that kind of counsel in our lives and live through the benefits of it? it kind of becomes desirable to have that more in our lives. It's like you listen to the Holy Spirit and you receive the benefits of listening to the Holy Spirit. And you're like, oh, I, I, I think I want more of that in my life. Abigail exhibited a godly virtue and godly wisdom that only the Holy Spirit can bring. And David recognized that. Who would not want to draw closer to that? Amen. Amen. So, I'll just leave you guys with just this one last thought. Personal circumstances you may be going through, maybe not. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe you've never experienced this before. God bless you if that's the case. There are ways, there are multiple ways we can sin in our anger. It always starts with a thought. Sometimes it escalates to what we say in word. <laughs> we have the potential in our lives to drag other people into our personal mess 
when we decide to sin in word. It's like, ah, okay. Even when we just have a desire to complain about it. I mean, maybe your motive isn't to just go out and like recruit help. That can sometimes be a motive. Maybe other times it's just, I just want to, I just need to unload. I need to process through these things. And you end up telling somebody about it, and next thing you know, you've embittered another believer. You've embittered somebody else to the situation. They really didn't need to be a part of that. Sitting in the Word. And the next thing you know, all of you guys are gaining up together, and you're going to take a course of action. Oh, that would be terrible. There are multiple ways we could sin in our anger. Not just in our wrath. We do it with gossip. We can do it just by, well, I'm sure you guys can imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the examples that you give in your word. I thank you that those examples are not always perfect, Lord. But, but Lord, we can see how you worked in those lives, Lord God, and you worked to bring those people to a place, Father, of listening to you and following your, your wisdom, Lord God, in these situations. I pray, God, that you would um, just continue to speak to our hearts today and, and, and so forth, and, and Lord, especially in the times that we're living in right now, especially when we're living in such a way, Lord God, that we don't necessarily have to be bitter at any one person, but we can just be bitter about circumstances, Lord, and we could be angry about things. Lord, help us not to sin in our anger, Lord, and help us to learn to let it go and to trust you with those things. We praise you in all of these things. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Eddie. That was a very good teaching. I, I really appreciated um, the insight, you know, into the stronghold and just how, you know, that's just the position of the enemy. And I was really thinking, you know, I, I, it's really something that, you know, when there's a, when there's a, um, a, a foothold, I mean to say, when there's a foothold, what does a foothold do? When the enemy gets a foothold, then he builds a stronghold, doesn't he? That's what he does, is he builds a, a stronghold. And and so uh, as we go into this time of prayer, I, w- I want us to be thinking about that. We, we do have a time where, during our worship here where we, we have an opportunity for you guys just to, you know, pray. And so, but, uh, um, you know, a, a stronghold is, is something that, that's much more serious than a foothold. It means it's been there for a long time. And, and I, as I think about this, and as Eddie's talking about, and relating this to, to anger, you know, that's the way sin is, isn't it? It doesn't make any difference. It can be any sin where we allow it to remain. And uh, it's been there for a while, and there's a stronghold. And I want to remind us of what it says, what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 10. It says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Or though we live in this world, we don't wage war as the world does. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down or demolishing strongholds. And I want to encourage you guys to take this opportunity if the Lord's speaking to your heart about any area in your life and you go, you know what, that's a stronghold. I have bitterness, I have anger, whatever it may be. Maybe it's an attitude or whatever it is. The Lord will pull it down. He will demolish it. Okay? Prayer is one of our divine weapons. So I want to encourage you guys in that as well.